Let us now open our Bibles to hear God speak to us. The text that I want to focus on is from Colossians chapter 3, but in connection with that, we'll first read a couple of other related passages. First from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So far from Ephesians, let's also turn to the first letter of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God." For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now finally, we want to take a look at our text. That's in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 19. Wives, submit to your own husband, to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, if you want to get people upset very quickly, which shouldn't be something you want, but if you wanted to do that, one way uh, would be to talk about the biblical ethic of marriage, and particularly the the S word uh, that was mentioned a few times in our reading, submission. Uh, The Christian view of marriage and and of the the complementary roles of husband and wife um, in our culture is routinely despised, ridiculed, and I would add misunderstood by our world, both by non-Christians and all too often by Christians as well. And yet that's where uh, we find ourselves in, in this letter to the Colossians. Uh, we want to recognize as, as we work through this, one of the reasons I chose to work through this is because here you get one of the most practical outworkings of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to defend that, that argument. In, in this view of marriage, you have one of the most practical outworkings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, now that's what the, the, if you look at the letter to the Colossians as a whole, that's what the letter is all about. 
Uh, it's, it's the grace of God shown to us in taking us out of this old kingdom to which we once belonged by virtue of our sinful nature. God, by His grace, reaching down, taking us and placing us in the kingdom of Christ His Son, the kingdom of light and truth. And you see all that primarily in, in chapter 1. You look at chapter 1, verse uh, 13, for example. Uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, uh, of the son of his love. Uh, that's the thesis for Colossians. Uh, God, and it's the greatest imaginable news in your life. I said this to my congregation when we worked on that text. Uh, you ought to wake up every morning thinking, this is great news. I've been taken from the old kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God's Son. And, and literally every time, I've made this a habit now, every time I open the news, I, I have the BBC News on my app, or app on my phone, every time I make it a point, before I click, what's the greatest news out there? It is that I belong to the kingdom of Christ. There's no greater news than that. Um, and so that's Paul's thesis in Colossians. And as he works that out, he makes it clear right from the beginning, this is going to get very practical. Um, and so you see that even in his prayer for the Colossian church, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 9, um, he, he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, of your faith, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Uh, so Paul's whole point is, I'm going to lay the gospel before this Colossian church, and then I want to show them how practically it works itself out in their lives, that they may grow in knowledge of God's will and in wisdom. And so then we get to marriage, uh, the, the practical outworking of the gospel in marriage. The principle here is because we belong to Christ's kingdom, we now live kingdom down, not culture up. We live kingdom down, not culture up. We belong to that kingdom which will one day fill this earth. And so already now on this earth, we live as citizens of that kingdom and no longer as citizens of our culture. We live kingdom down, not culture up. And that affects every area of our lives and not surprisingly affects also then our marriages. Now it's no surprise to any of you that our world is broken and confused when it comes to the issue of marriage. Uh, and and that, that is part of Paul's premise. That's why he calls it the kingdom of darkness. The works of darkness reign in our culture, and particularly in our culture's view of marriage. Uh, unfaithful marriages, abusive marriages, hostile marriages. And, and in our culture, even the, the, the cultural abandonment of marriage altogether, replacing marriage with things like cohabitation. Uh, and that's the kingdom to which you and I used to belong, from which God has taken us out to bring us into the kingdom of Christ, to, to bring us to know Christ and, and live as citizens of His kingdom. Redefined lives shaped by the, the values and priorities of Christ's kingdom. Now our, our text has before us instructions to wives, verse 18, and instructions to husbands in verse 19. Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. That's our, our focus for this morning. Before we get there, though, I want to quick lay a, a basic foundation for us to work off of. Uh, in order to understand what Christian marriage looks like and why it looks like what it does, uh, why Christ built it that way, we need to understand first what it exists for. Um, this is true with anything. If you want to know why is it built the way it is, you need to ask, well, what's it built for? Um, I, I have this experience on a daily basis as someone coming from the city, now living in the country, and I see these machines driving all over the field, and I have no idea what they're for, and that's why I also have no idea why they look like what they do. Um, it, it's just foreign objects to me. And for many, for many new believers, Christian marriage is a foreign object. It, why does it look the way it does? 
Well, you need to ask, what's it for? Um, and so we want to ask that question as well. Uh, much of the opposition to, to uh, the, the biblical view of marriage comes from distorted ideas about what marriage is, and, and that also often comes from, from bad examples that have either been experienced or witnessed. Um, so we want to start with the biblical meaning of marriage itself. What does marriage exist for in God's original design and creation as well as here in the kingdom of Christ? There's two levels on which you can answer that question. On the first and most basic level, what's marriage for? Well, marriage was designed by God to be the most intimate of friendships. At its heart, marriage is a friendship. Uh, it's a, a, a unique partnership of two very different but perfectly complementary partners, a man and a woman who were made for one another to serve God together in the friendship of marriage. Uh, so you can say it's a unique friendship that is bound and sealed by covenant. makes it different than, than your, your average friendship. It is bound and sealed by covenant. Uh, that's the vision that you'll get from, uh, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Uh, so God made us male and female. And you, you go to Genesis 2, and it, it draws that out, that story, and, and says God saw that man was alone and that it was not good that man should be alone. So he made a helper, or uh, the, I like the, the old-fashioned word better, uh, help meet. Uh, there's a difference. A, a helper is just one who helps. A help meet is one who meets a need that without that help, you cannot get the job done. And I like that. That's a better word for what's meant by, by helper uh, there in Genesis 2. Uh, the woman was created to be a help meet to, to enable the man to fulfill his calling uh, without which he, he would not be able to fulfill his calling. Uh, that calling in Genesis is, is to subdue the earth and to fill it. Uh, and, and we learn that from the rest of Scripture. What does it mean to, to fill the earth and to subdue it? And ultimately, God's purpose is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of His name. Right? What, what were we created for as human beings? Ultimately, to know God, to love Him and to live with Him for His glory. Um, as the, the Westminster Catechism also puts it, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and that's our purpose. You see that in Scripture as well. Isaiah 45, uh, all those whom, I, whom I've created for my glory, who I formed and made. Or Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So if that's our purpose as human beings, that's what we were created for as human beings, that is also then the purpose of marriage. To enable us as man and woman to fulfill our calling to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Uh, to be His image bearers and to fill the, knowledge, uh, fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. Uh, so that's the most fundamental purpose for marriage. Uh, we also learn that not only is marriage a friendship, but it is also a covenant meant to be a picture of the covenant between God and His people. There's our second purpose uh, for marriage, or answering that on a second level. What is marriage for? Marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between God and His people, or in New Testament language, between Christ and, and His church. Uh, so the husband is called to imitate God's love for his people in the way that he loves his wife. We saw that in Ephesians. We saw that in, in uh, 1 Peter as well. Uh, and the church is called to picture, or excuse me, the wife is called to picture the church's joyful, glad response to that love. Uh, so not only is marriage a friendship designed to enable us to fulfill our calling, it's also a picture designed to teach us about God's love for us and our response of love back to Him. Uh, and so if that's what marriage is for, that then enables us to understand why. Why is marriage built the way that it is? 
Uh, it's not just an accident that, that God calls women to be, or wives, to be submissive to their husbands and, and husbands to proactively love their wives. God's purpose in that is to enable us to fulfill our calling and to be a picture of His love for His church. Uh, and, and so the, the design in marriage is to teach us through marriage about eternal things that are much bigger than marriage. To teach us through marriage about eternal truths about God Himself and His relationship with us that is much bigger than marriage. Uh, So our marriages exist then for a higher purpose than for ourselves. And this is where uh, where we would disagree with our world that believes that marriage exists to fulfill our needs. We recognize as Christians, no. Marriage exists for something much bigger than us. To teach us and to teach the world about God's love for His people and His people's love back to Him. Uh, And so as Christians now, as as people who have been taken from that, that old kingdom, brought into the kingdom of Christ, this is our starting point as we think about marriage. Our marriages are intended to be a picture of God's love for His church. A copy, in other words, of the original. Marriage is designed as a copy of of the original. Uh, So husbands are called to uh, mirror and reflect Christ's sacrificial love, that laying down His life love for uh, for His church. And wives are given that unique calling to, to picture and portray the church's joyful, glad response to that love. Okay, now what does that submission and headship look like in in Christian marriage? Now we come to the practical instructions. Uh, If we take our cue then from the original, uh, of which marriage is a copy, then we can say that at its heart, submission, godly feminine submission, I'll give a definition, is a glad, joyful response to worthy life-giving, sacrificial leadership. That's half of it. A glad, joyful response to worthy, life-giving, sacrificial leadership. And a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, honor, and nurture that leadership. So it's a, it's, it, there's two parts to it. Uh, there is a godly submission, a glad submission to, to, to godly leadership as well as a disposition to honor and nurture such leadership. So there's a response to leadership that is there, as well as an inclination or disposition to honor and nurture leadership that might not be there or or might not yet be mature. Uh, Both of those are are aspects of godly feminine submission, Uh, the, the submission to which Christian wives are called. Uh, So what this means is a godly wife can be submissive in godly ways to a husband who is not a godly man. A godly wife can be submissive in godly ways to a husband who is not a godly man. Um, Where there is a desire, an inclination to nurture, to engender leadership, godly leadership, where it does not yet exist. That That is good, godly, feminine submission. Uh, and, and we know this because wives are called to submit to their husbands even in non-Christian marriages. Uh, Paul and Peter both speak to those kinds of cases where they're still called, as Peter says, that, so that your husbands may be won without a word by the godly conduct of your wives. Uh, there's there's a, a godly, healthy submission that seeks to nurture leadership in men uh, to, which women are, to which wives are called. Now, let me say this right away. Godly feminine submission obviously does not mean following or going along with leadership that is evil. It is not following leadership that is evil. Uh, wherever Scripture speaks of any authority, whether it's between parents and children or us and our government, uh, the, the understanding is always that above every authority is the authority of Christ. And we are always to follow the authority of Christ first. So if a husband wants his wife to join him in sin, uh, the response of godly submission is, I love you, I want to honor your leadership, your calling as my husband, but in this I cannot join you. 
That is godly uh, feminine submission. And you, you can hear in that sort of response, even in that, that no, I cannot go with you, uh, even there, there is an expression of honor and desire to be led in a godly way. And, and that is what, what wives are called to. Uh, so godly feminine submission does not mean submitting to evil, but rather desiring and affirming in her husband true leadership that is godly, worthy, and life-giving. And if I may digress for a moment, this is woven into our, our nature even as men and women. Uh, this is part of how God has, has made us. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just accepting this is going to offend our culture. Uh, this, that's, that's just the way it is. Uh, but we recognize uh, that this is how God has built our world. Uh, there is and there ought to be in, in men or even in boys a desire to take responsibility to lead uh, and to protect and provide for women and children. That, that should be written on the heart of every, every young man, every boy. And, and there is and ought to be in girls and in women a desire to receive and honor that kind of strength and leadership from men. Uh, that's how God has, has built us. Uh, now, now in, this, in our broken world, in our fallen culture uh, that, that's so, so badly twisted by sin, um, some of that is, is so badly twisted that it's no longer even recognizable. Uh, men who, who use their God-given strength, uh, which was intended to, to be nurturing and protecting and providing, men will often use that strength to take, to, to destroy uh, what belongs to others. Uh, and, and there are cultures in our world that even celebrate uh, that kind of abusive masculinity. That is certainly evil. Uh, there are other cultures like ours that, that react against that kind of abusive masculinity uh, by, by denouncing masculinity altogether. Uh, this is, uh, in our culture, what we speak of as toxic masculinity. Toxic uh, was, was uh, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year this year, not because it's a new word, uh, but because it's applied in a way it's never been used before as, as referring to masculinity as itself being toxic in, in our culture. Uh, and, and so we renounce masculinity altogether in our culture, but this too is, is wrong and unhelpful. Uh, refusing to teach boys to be men uh, does not lead to a world that's better for women, uh, but, but a world that is, that is actually much worse. Failing to teach boys to be men uh, only produces passive and destructive boys and men. Uh, men who will not lead and provide and lay down their lives for what is good, but will do nothing and simply take and be served uh, using their strength uh, selfishly. And so the kind, of, the kind of feminism that regards masculinity as toxic only creates more victims. And, and, and the victims that suffer the most will be the women. Uh, sin is what is toxic. Sin is toxic, and sin, if left unaddressed, is particularly toxic uh, the stronger a person is. So it's particularly toxic in sinful men. Uh, this is why as Christians, we as, we as a church, as Christians, need to recover a, a biblical sense of, of manhood and womanhood. Uh, too often that's been lost even within the church. We need to be, be able to, to answer our, our children, for example. If, you're, if your boys ask you as mothers, uh, Mom, what does it mean to be a, a, a man and, and not a woman? Uh, you should be able to answer that kind of question. Or if your girls ask you, uh, Mom, what does it mean to be a woman as opposed to as distinct from a man? You should be able to answer that question. What is a godly, a biblical woman? Uh, what is biblical womanhood? What is biblical manhood? Those are questions that are taboo in our culture. Uh, we're, we're supposed to blur the distinctions. Uh, but as Christians, we should uphold the distinctions with honor, recognizing that God created them for, for that which is good. And, and if, if, if we don't answer the questions ourselves, they're still going to get answered. Uh, sin will answer them for you if you don't teach those, those answers yourselves. Uh, and, and so, if this is how God has made us, these, these distinctions become very pronounced 
within marriage, whether for good or, or for evil. Uh, and, and if it's in a Christian marriage, it is, our distinctions as men and women become pronounced in godly, life-giving, sacrificial leadership imitating Christ and joyful, glad submission uh, picturing the church's response to Christ. And if men would do this, if, if men uh, were strong, godly, life-giving men, this whole concept of submission would, would cease to be controversial. Uh, the only reason it's controversial is, is because men have not been what they've been called to be. Uh, and, and so the problem in our day is that there is so little godly, life-giving leadership to affirm uh, such that in, in the experience of many women, the whole idea of submission automatically implies submission to a selfish, evil man. And, and that, that's a dangerous idea and so is rejected by our culture. It ought not to be that way. Men must first be men. Going back then to, to, to the letter to the Colossians, uh, the, the thesis then is we've been delivered from the old kingdom, brought into the new kingdom, uh, and, and so our marriages will also uh, reflect our new identity and our new, our new place of belonging. Uh, they will be changed into that picture of Christ and, and His church. Let me clarify then a number of things that submission does not mean. Number one, submission does not mean agreeing on everything. Submission does not mean agreeing on everything. Uh, we know this because other passages in Scripture, like 1 Peter 3, uh, which we read together, uh, their Christian women are called to have a heart of submission even to unbelieving husbands. Obviously, submission does not mean agreeing uh, with them in, in their unbelief. And so we want to recognize what, what we've said earlier, that, that uh, the woman was created to be the helpmeet to the man to enable him to fulfill his calling, which means sometimes she has to disagree with him. Uh, otherwise, how will she help him uh, when he's wrong? So men who think that real masculinity means never listening to your wife uh, are not strong men. They are weak and they are stupid men. Uh, God gave you your wife because God said you need her. Uh, so listen to your wife and listen to God who says you need her. Uh, that's, that's what God teaches us. So submission does not mean that the wife leaves her brain at the door uh, when she becomes married. Uh, and, and any husband who expects that is, is not only misguided, but he puts himself at a very serious disadvantage uh, because now he cannot receive the help that God has given him because he needs it. Uh, and, and, and of course, you, you wives know this already. You know that your husband needs your help. Uh, that without your help, he, he, is, he is going to go through a world of, of difficulty. Uh, you cannot help him if you're not willing to disagree with him when you need to. To correct him when he's wrong. God says he needs your help. So, and, and the same is true then for the man. Real masculinity desires and receives the input and correction of, of his wife. Uh, real masculine leadership is capable of saying, uh, as, as every husband has had to say, uh, I was wrong. You were right. It's a man, a godly man, who can say that. Number two, Submission doesn't mean, uh, does not mean avoiding the effort to influence or change your husband. Uh, that, that should be just as obvious from, from the passage in, in 1 Peter 3, uh, where wives are called to submit to unbelieving husbands. Obviously, that does not mean avoiding the effort to influence or change their husbands. Uh, in fact, that's precisely the point of the submission. As Peter says, uh, submit to them so that they may be won without a word, by the conduct of their wives. The whole point is to influence and change them. Uh, no husband is perfect yet. God is still working even on, on the best husband. And, and one of the most important and central means by which God is working on you men is through the wife that God has given you. Uh, 
And, and so, again, submission is not only a, a joyful, glad response to, to leadership that is there, but also that disposition to nurture, affirm, and, and mature leadership that is not all the way there as it ought to be. Number three, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Uh, I made the point a moment ago, uh, but it it needs to be said that um, men will often use this command, wives submit to your husbands, they will use this command to compel their wives into joining them in sin. That is not what the command means. Uh, When a husband is in sin, particularly if he's a member of the church, uh, there are higher authorities above him to which you as a wife ought to go. Uh, He can be reported to the church. And if he's committed crimes, he he ought to be reported to the law. Uh, He is not above the law. A husband's word is never absolute over his wife. Uh, A wife must never follow her husband into sin. Uh, it, It is evil and cowardly men who will use a verse like this uh, to to put their wives under sin, uh, under their sin. Uh, That's not what the verse means. Uh, To put it another way, um, a husband who demands to be in authority while refusing to be under authority is an evil and dangerous man. And the same would be true of fathers as well. A father who insists on being in authority while refusing to be under authority is an evil and dangerous man. Number four, it's a bit uh, more difficult. Submission is given, not taken. Submission is given freely, not taken by force. Now, I want to say this carefully because there there certainly will be times where a husband will have to say, you know, honey, I love you, but I cannot let the family go this way. Uh, Those those times may may happen. It may happen the other way around as well, where a wife has to say that to to her husband. Uh, But even though that that exercise of authority, of of compelled authority, can happen legitimately, uh, submission is something done on the part of the wife not something taken by the husband. This, this verse was written to wives, not to men to use against their wives. It was written to wives. Uh, and submission is a joyful, freeing disposition. It's not something that is compelled. Uh, true submission is heartfelt. It, it comes from the heart. And, and in general... The leadership and authority of of the husband should be something that is carried out on the authority of the respect that he has earned. I'm not saying that that wives don't have an obligation to to show that respect, but men have an obligation to earn that respect as well. In general, the leadership of the husband should be something carried out on the authority of the respect that he has earned. Uh, by, by virtue of his godly leadership. Number five, submission does not mean that the wife is any less intelligent or competent. This is another a very common misunderstanding even within, within the church, uh, this belief that, that if, the, if the wife is more intelligent, uh, then, then submission no longer applies. Uh, or, or even that submission simply uh, assumes lesser intelligence. The roles that God has put in place for marriage uh, to, are, are to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and His church. They're not based on the intelligence or competence of either the husband or the wife. Uh, that, that's not even the issue. It's not even relevant to the issue of, of uh, submission and leadership. Uh, Your wife may be more competent than you in all sorts of areas. You think of the Proverbs, the wife in Proverbs 31 who uh, is is dealing in in real estate, who works with her hands, who who makes trades, who who makes a profit, who serves the community, who helps the needy. Uh, All these things that she's competent in and and presumably more competent even than, than her husband. Uh, that does not remove the issue of, of submission. Uh, nor does it disable the man from taking leadership. Uh, he may be less competent than his wife in all sorts of areas and still take leadership 
in the home. And uh, in, in, in taking that leadership, he doesn't need to be the better theologian. He doesn't need to be the smarter man. He doesn't need to be the one who reads better. A husband can take leadership in the home by calling the family, for example, to, to devotions and then saying to his wife, would you please read because you're a better reader. That's, that's still godly leadership. It's not about intelligence or competence. Number six, submission does not mean that men are superior and women are inferior. Now, most men know this, and those that don't are the most inferior of all. Uh, the roles of, of headship and, and submission do not say anything about superiority or inferiority. Uh, you think of 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, in the Greek, co-heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, your wives are to be honored as co-heirs with you uh, of eternal life. Number seven, uh, lastly, submission does not mean that the wife uh, doesn't have a, a leadership role in the home as well. Uh, this, the pattern in, the, in Scripture is singular headship, plural leadership. Singular headship, plural leadership. You see this even in the person of God Himself. God the Father um, has that headship, and yet God the Son um, still has leadership over, over the church. Uh, he submits to the Father, and yet He leads uh, the church. And, and in fact, you see this everywhere, don't you? You think of companies that have a president and a vice president. Uh, husband and wife work together in the leadership of the home. Uh, and so a husband who, who doesn't know how to work with his wife in the leadership of the home, uh, including oftentimes yielding to her decisions when, when she's more competent to judge in a given area, uh, a husband who doesn't know how to do that is putting himself at a disadvantage. Again, she's, she's there because God says you need her help. So I want to be clear then about all these things that, that submission does, does not mean so that we can then rightly understand what it does mean as a glad, joyful response to worthy, life-giving, sacrificial leadership and a freeing disposition to honor, affirm, and nurture that leadership. And it's based upon not competence, not intelligence, not superiority, but it's based upon the roles as husband and wife of reflecting the relationship between Christ and His church. Let me finish then with a, a few words to the men. Uh, we spent a lot of time on verse 18 written to, to the wives. And, and we did that because submission is a, a taboo word in our culture. Uh, but in Paul's time, the, the more controversial verse here would have been verse 19. Um, this, this idea that, that men actually have an obligation to love their wives. That would have been a shocker in Paul's culture. In Paul's culture, men... Uh, had an absolute authority over their wives and children. Uh, they, could, they were their property, and they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, a man could even have his wife and children executed if he wanted to do so. In that culture, that was permitted. Uh, and, and so the shocker would have been verse, verse 19, where there's an obligation, a command, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Uh, that, that phrase, do not be embittered against them, can also be translated, do not be harsh against them. And, and it's pretty easy to think of, isn't it? Uh, ways that men can be harsh or bitter against their wives. Uh, and I, I want to work through a couple of these. Uh, number one, being harsh through criticism, or constant criticism. You know, some women wonder, do I ever do anything right? Because my husband only mentions anything when I do something wrong. Uh, that is harshness towards your wife. Uh, relationships, uh, an analogy we often use in our home is uh, relationships are like bank accounts. You, you make deposits and you make withdrawals. Um, and what happens if you're only ever making withdrawals, the, the check eventually bounces. The relationship runs dry. Uh, there's nothing to pull from. Uh, and what often happens is when, when a couple are dating, uh, then, then they're constantly making deposits. 
um, you know, I love you, you're the sweetest thing I've ever seen, all this lovely stuff that, that couples who are dating say to each other. And it is, it is lovely, it is beautiful. Um, but they're only making deposits, and then oftentimes once they get married, they start making withdrawals, and then they, they stop making deposits, and they just keep on making withdrawals because they assume that uh, the deposits have already been made. You already know I love you, so now I get to withdraw for the rest of our relationship. The bank eventually, uh, the, the check eventually runs dry. Uh, husbands, loving your wives and not being harsh or embittered against them means you need to be deliberate and intentional about making constant deposits. Tell her that you love her, and that you appreciate her. Honor the hard work that she does. Praise her for it. You know, there's, there's the Proverbs 31 uh, wife, but there is also a Proverbs 31 husband. Um, it, it says in, in Proverbs 31 verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. You want a Proverbs 31 wife? Start by being a Proverbs 31 husband. Uh, no one will have a greater influence on, on your sense of dignity and self-worth than your wife. And the same is true in the reverse. Uh, this is why a low opinion of your wife will be so utterly destructive in your marriage. And, and a husband, a Christian husband, must never tolerate a low opinion of his wife to creep into his way of thinking. And, and, and never under any circumstances is it ever true. Um, you cannot have a low opinion of her. She is created in the image of God with immense dignity and worth. Uh, yes, yes, she is also a creature with the limitations that come with that. And, and yes, she is also a sinner, and it's, it's good to have a, a healthy, uh, accurate perspective on that. But never... Under any, any circumstances, may you allow a, a degrading or devaluing opinion of her to creep into your way of thinking, uh, and, and much, much less into your words. It is absolutely destructive and demonic and evil when husbands have a low opinion of their wives. Number two, uh, men are harsh when they're emotionally distant. It's amazing that, that so many husbands uh, consider it the wife's responsibility to be physically intimate with them on a regular basis, but don't take nearly as seriously their responsibility uh, to be spiritually, mentally, and emotionally intimate with their wives. Uh, being, being emotionally present means things like putting away the, the TV uh, and, and putting away the smartphone, as the case may be, and, and spending time with her, talking with her. That's, it's an obligation you have towards her. Uh, one of the things that amazed uh, my wife and I when we first came to our congregation, uh, I'm sure there are many cases in, in here, this church as well, um, is, is how many couples have a set-apart time um, during the day where it's just mom and dad time, and, and the kids know it's off-limits, and it's just 30 minutes, 45 minutes, where, where they have their own time set apart in the day where they just get to meet, just visit, talk, uh, see, see how one another are doing. Uh, my wife and I were amazed by that. We'd never seen couples do that, just setting apart that, that time. Uh, but it's, it's a tremendous blessing in your marriage to, to give you that opportunity to be emotionally, mentally, spiritually present with each other. Uh, number three, men are harsh when they treat the marriage like a business contract. I'm sure many of you have seen this. Uh, some husbands think of their marriage like it's a business contract uh, where you could get fired if you, don't, if, if you don't live up to your side of the contract. Uh, that's not what marriage is. Uh, marriage is a covenant. You have made promises that you are obliged to keep even if your spouse doesn't keep their promises. You have said, till death do us part. Um, so, a husband needs to, needs to step back and first look at his own responsibility before God. Uh, who, who am I before God? I have made an oath before God that does not depend on what my wife does, and I will keep my vow. Uh, a marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. Uh, number four, men are harsh when they punish their wives with, silent, with, with the silent treatment. Uh, 
women will do this as well. This is, this is certainly not something limited to the men. Uh, but, but oftentimes, uh, just as, as wives can be vindictive uh, towards their husbands by withholding themselves sexually from their husbands, men are often vindictive to their wives by punishing their wives uh, by being silent towards them, treating her like she's not worth talking to. Uh, that is harshness and bitterness. And it's the mirror opposite of, of how Christ treats his church, right? Christ speaks tenderly to his church. Christ uh, is near to his church, even for all of his church's failings. As a husband, will you be like Christ? Uh, men who, who treat their wives uh, with, with, with silence uh, are teaching lies and, and even heresies about Christ uh, by the way they, they treat their wives. Uh, number five, men are harsh when they emotionally abuse their wives. Uh, emotional abuse is, is not something that, that is talked about all that often within the church, but ought to be. Uh, and, and it ought to be something that, that one can be even uh, disciplined for and corrected by, by the elders for. Um, emotional abuse is saying and doing things that erode a person's sense of, of dignity and, and self-worth. It can involve threatening. It can involve uh, bullying. It might involve uh, financial control or micromanagement of, of the wife's uh, life or, or that constant criticism that, that uh, we spoke about earlier. Uh, intimidation, shaming, manipulation. It's showing disregard or disrespect, whether that's by name-calling, ridiculing, or in some way communicating that she is less than equal. Uh, sometimes it's treating her like she's one of the children. Uh, that, that is emotional abuse. It is contempt that, that a husband shows to his wife. Uh, and the reality is, in, in any marriage, both partners will be guilty of this sort of thing. Uh, this is why, as Christians, our marriages only thrive with the cross of Christ at the center. All right, we, we can forgive one another because of the cross of Christ that stands at the center of, of our marriages. Uh, but, but just as we hold on to the, to, to the cross of Christ, so we must hold on to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, just as Christ died and, and our sins died there, so also we rise to new life as Christians with a new identity, a new hope, a new future, a new name, and we live by that new name. Emotional abuse then, that imposing of oneself over the wife, uh, intimidating her, shutting her down, that's part of the old man that must be put to death. Uh, number six, men, men are, are harsh by physically abusing their wives. It's a tragedy, but this happens within the church. Uh, and the women here in, in this church too need to know that is never Okay, not even, not even once. If he hits you, you need to talk to the church. You need to talk to the police immediately, even if it's just once. It is profoundly evil for a man to physically abuse his wife, to hurt her, uh, to damage her. And it must stop for your sake, for his sake, and for the, the sake of the children. If there are children involved, uh, you need to get help. It's, it's a tragedy how, how surprisingly, shockingly often this happens within the church. And these relationships can last for years being physically abusive within the church. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, an abusive man will enable this behavior by, by speaking about forgiveness. You need to forgive me. Uh, as, as Christians, we're supposed to forgive each other. Uh, but forgiveness is one thing. Enabling is another. Uh, evil men will tell their wives, you need to forgive me, as if that means you need to forget about the sin, you should not report it, you should not deal with it. That's not forgiveness, that's enablement. Uh, and and that, is, that is then a participating in the sin, allowing it to go on when it ought not to. Uh, and, and so if there has been a phys physical abuse, it's a crime, it needs to be reported, uh, and, and forgiveness can happen even while you're reporting it to the police. It's not a contradiction to forgive and still deal with uh, the sin. So the command then is to the husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh or bitter against them. Uh, let me put it really briefly. God wants you to be a safe place for his daughter. Before she's your wife, she's God's daughter. 
Uh, do not demand then that, that she carry out her role of submission uh, if you do not in the first place carry out your duty to love her um, and to be constant in your love for her. Uh, true masculinity is governed by love. Men who do not love their wives are weak men, not strong men. Uh, and, and your calling then is to love her as Christ loves the church and as Christ gave up his life for the church. Uh, as, as we also read in, in Ephesians 5, and so you can ask, what does the love of Christ look like for the church? And, and the Lord Jesus says in, in Mark 10, Verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what true, godly, masculine love looks like. Coming not to be served, but to serve and to give your life for her. God's design for you as a husband is that you would be a strong protector, a faithful provider, and a a spiritual godly leader, giving your strength for the benefit of of your wife and your children. And again, if, if men were doing that, the whole concept of submission would cease to be controversial tomorrow. If, if men were doing that. Uh, husbands, your wife would be glad to submit to such a man. And, and I, I trust that there are many such men in our midst uh, whose wives would also say, I rejoice uh, to be able to follow and submit to uh, a man like my husband who does give that godly spiritual leadership. Uh, so, what does a kind husband look like? Um, I, I won't get into detail. Let me just read a, a few bullet points. A kind husband, in the first place, knows that he needs his wife. He knows that God has given her to him because he needs her. Uh, a kind husband is a lover. Uh, you think of the, the Song of Solomon uh, where, where she says, He is my lover and he is my friend. That's what a kind husband looks like. He's ardent, devoted, and strong for her sake. A kind husband is a provider. Uh, he knows his wife's needs and he works to meet them. A kind, hus- a kind husband is a protector. He defends her and shields her. A kind husband is tender. Uh, a lack of, uh, this is often where, where men struggle because they think men shouldn't be tender, but men should be tender to their wife. Uh, a, a lack of tenderness shows a lack of masculinity. And finally, a kind husband is a friend and a brother. Uh, you think again of the Song of Solomon uh, 5, verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. A kind husband is a brother to his wife. And those are the words of Christ, after all, aren't they? For the church, I came to my sister, my bride. A kind and gentle husband is a picture of our Savior who was strong, manly and strong as he went to the cross to lay down his life for his church. Uh, So brothers and sisters, encourage one another, help one another in this, and let us all look to Christ as we seek to live out the relationship between Christ and his church as we seek to live that out in our own small, humble, earthly marriages. Amen.